This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Do you know where Geraldton is? Well, it's midway down the coast of Western Australia. It appears far away, but when you read there are islands, three-hour boat ride even further west, that makes them even more remote. This is where Emily Brugman has set her book aptly named The Islands. Welcome, Emily. Hi, Jan. Thanks for having me. These islands are difficult to navigate and have a shipwreck history that goes back over 300 years. There was a ship called the Batavia, which wrecked in the northern group of the Abrolhos Islands in the 1600s. It was a Dutch East India Company ship, which was heading for Batavia, now known as Jakarta. The islands are very low-lying coral islands and what followed was a mutiny and during this time a group murdered and raped a bunch of the shipwreck survivors that they were on the islands with. Eventually a rescue ship was sent and the perpetrators were hung on the islands and they were left there. What transpired in the 1960s was a cray fisherman was burying rubbish on an island in the Abrolhos and dug up a human bone. When they did some more excavating, they'd been looking for this ship for a really long time, but they thought it was in a different location. And when they did some excavating in this area, they found lots and lots of bones, Uh, did some diving exploration, and they found the ship lots of like pottery and all of the things that the ship was was taking it's all been um, brought up since and you can go and see the stern of the ship at the um, museum in Perth. Well we got more detail there than it's actually in the book because the book isn't about that the ghosts of course are relevant but much closer to our own history is 1950s and there's five Finnish men from Finland who set up camp on Little Rat, one of the islands. Let's just hear a little bit from page one. It's the very first paragraph of the book, The Islands by Emily Brookman. The islands were a day's boat ride west of the mainland. There was a point halfway across, the fisherman said, like an imaginary line drawn in water, where you left it all behind. Sparse weatherboard suburbia, the dusty rhythm of mainland life, the port with its towering silos, its tugboats and ocean liners. Halfway across the deep trough, you entered another universe. A few more hours of travelling and the welcome sliver of an island would come into view, then another. Landscapes built of bleached coral and rubble of salt bush and seabird droppings. This is so different to Finland. They've come... They've built this little camp out of stone walls and corrugated iron roof. And even then, they had to have a lease to fish. So when one of them, Nal Sari, goes missing, who takes up his lease? His younger brother, Onni Sari, has arrived in Australia and he is working a lead mine in Northampton. And this is actually what my grandfather was doing before he ended up fishing for craze on the islands. On Nisari, in this fictional tale, the next day he boards the carrier boat and he joins a search party of the, along with these 
men who have set up camp on Little Rat along with his brother. Uh, during this time when Onni is on the islands, despite the tragedy that has brought him there, he is captivated by them. Onni inherits the Kralese and him and his wife set up camp on Little Rat in Nulle's old tin hut. There's quite a community and uh, Omni's wife, Elva, actually finds other Finnish women there, but they're basically from Helsinki. They're more, shall we say, sophisticated. Elva has been brought up on a poor farm and she's had a very religious and superstitious upbringing. Elva was brought up on a confusing concoction of pagan superstition and Lutheran guilt. Another bit of Finnish tradition, if someone has sisu, a quiet bear sleeping inside. So who do you think in your family has the most sisu? Well, in the book, Alva is the person who represents that particular Finnish characteristic. Sisu is loosely translated to grit or resilience in the face of adversity. And she grows up in extreme poverty, sort of despite where she was born. She ends up in a place so vastly different from what might have been expected for her, being kind of stuck between many worlds. You know, she she's almost always homeless um, because she doesn't learn the language that well and so she kind of ends up somewhere adrift between Australia and Finland and the East Coast and the islands. And she's not a literal representation of my grandmother, but she is close, she is inspired by her. And so I like to think that my grandma, Mayla, was the person uh, who had that sizzle. Now, through all of this, we, we have this knowledge that all these Finnish people know a folktale. In Finland, there is a epic poem known as the Gullevala. Originally, it was passed down through song, but it was compiled into a text in the 1800s. It's become known as Finland's national literary text, but it's a creation story in a way. The Sampo is an indeterminate object which exists in the folk tales. It's described as a mill. It grinds flour, salt and money and it brings abundance and nourishment to the people or the community who have it. In the poems, in the Kalevala, the Sampo is fought over. It's eventually lost in the sea during a battle. It was fascinating how it blended through with all the characters looking for it, some of them finding it and losing it. We get all of these Finnish superstitions put into the story as well, like having cupboards, doors either opened or closed and not passing objects across a threshold, spitting over the left shoulder because that's where the devil lives, burying cut fingernails with the deceased. Well, when Hilda and that's Elva and Omni's daughter, is born, she has such a sense of displacement that she and the baby go back to the island. And it's not really until Hilda starts at school that Elva is forced to socialise with the other mums. And here we get our first bit of 
racist attitude from Eileen. When Hilda goes to school, Alva has some of those first forced connections with Australian society and Alva's language is still very elementary. And this is kind of the moment when we see the generational divide which they will be struggling with over the next few years. So as Hilda goes to school, you know, her English just flourishes and Alva feels really left behind. Um, And during this time she meets Aileen, who is her neighbour and also uh, has a little girl the same age. In a way they strike up a friendship eventually. It's when Aileen, the mother, comes over and says that Hilda has no manners she, she didn't say please. Elvis thinks, well, there's no word for that in Finnish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are certain attributes of the Finnish character. Some of these are that too many niceties or pleasantries might seem disingenuous. For example, Finnish people are seen as reserved and maybe straight to the point sometimes. There is a Finnish saying that talk is silver, silence is golden. And I I suppose this is where their difference is hidden under the sameness of their white skin. And so it's not until they have interactions and they talk that some of these incongruities in the uh, intercultural relationships come to the rise. It does show because after Elva, there's an Asian family that move into the same street. And there's a quote there from the book. There was a long convoluted line of people waiting to be called Australian. And while Elva was nowhere near the front, she was no longer at the back of the line either. Both Elva and Hilda feel at home on the island with friends and playmates. And we learn of their stories and their disappointments. There is also a sense of unease by the father, Omni, that has them setting up home somewhere else. Part two of the book, where does that happen? In part two, we torn out of the setting of the Abrolis and we are taken to the the far south coast of New South Wales. And this is actually where I grew up. Onni and Alva have decided that they'll continue looking for that sense of belonging or that sampo uh, somewhere else and so they attempt the difficult task of settlement for a second time. We follow their progress in a way their inability to leave the island landscape behind. Well Hilda has her own life, she loses her virginity not on the islands and not with Ismo and begins her own family. So it is into the third generation which I think you may have hinted might be yourself that we read about and some of the traditions still live on. There's the sauna but the one thing that really surprised me was the melting of the lead on New Year's Eve. Yeah, so this is a tradition that my family have continued to do over the years. So my grandfather would heat lead, heat it in a ladle over a flame, and then you drop it very quickly into cold water and it kind of freezes into a a shape. And the shapes are very difficult to interpret, but you look at at the piece, every person gets one and it will be a sign of what's to come in in your new year. Fascinating. Now, they go to this island for crayfish and I'd like Emily Brookman to read 
from page 284, of all things, the life of a crayfish. He described the long migratory path taken by the crays, how the larvae drift up to a thousand kilometres offshore, where they grow and develop before being swept back towards the continental shelf by winds and currents. Only after a series of molts and long treks across the sea floor do they reach full maturity, developing their hard red outer shells. Many would die before they made it back to the offshore reefs. Emily, you started the first chapter and it was called Crayfish White. The last chapter, Crayfish Red. Can you explain it? Yeah, so I've used the crayfish life cycle as a metaphor for our protagonist, Onni, who arrives at the islands, naive, young, inexperienced, and we follow him from his early 20s all the way through to old age. And when he finally returns to the islands as an old man, he has done that long, arduous journey and metaphorically developed his hard red outer shell. We've talked about talk is silver and silence is golden. And through the book you talk about fishermen talking in grunts and nods and Finnish men not being able to talk about their feelings. But I like this joke. There was once a Finn who loved his wife so much he almost told her. Emily Brugman writes of the Finnish migrants building homes and families connected by hard work, crayfish, the beauty and the terror of the sea and nature in the islands. Thank you, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. I was speaking with Emily Brugman and David is going to be speaking with Gary Disher. With the title being The Way It Is Now, one has to wonder what things were like back then. Gary Disher helped solve the riddle of what happened back then in his latest murder mystery, The Way It Is Now. So, Gary, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks. It's good to be here, David. The novel opens in January of 2000, and there are some very important factual points that occur. We have the disappearance of two seemingly unrelated characters, Rose Derivan and Billy Saul. What's happened? It leads to the second section of the novel. It's a lo- an extended um, flashback, if you like. I did weigh up what to do about that. I thought it would have more impact for the main character and more impact for the reader if we get to know the mother before she disappears and the little boy. It's also introducing the fact that uh, the main character, Charlie, is a young constable at this stage. Uh, He's young and raw. He still has hope for the future, but suddenly he's uh, all that's turned upside down by the time we reach the second section 20 years later. Well, it sets up, as you say, a a sort of domestic setting, a a young Charlie Derivan, but it also sets up uh, some of the difficulties because Rose, who will disappear by the end of that section, and her husband, Reese, are getting a divorce. It's unfortunate territory. And also then Charlie and his brother Liam have had to help uh, Rose out, which sets up a suspect. And, And we're almost comfortable as a reader in establishing these elements. And then it's undercut. 
it's one of the tricks that so-called tricks that uh, crime writers use i think is uh, along with uh, carefully placed turning points is to uh, give the reader a false sense of comfort or a false sense of where the story is going and then the pull the rug from under their feet so I don't tell myself every 10 pages I have to pull the rug out from underneath the feet of the reader, but um, I think unconsciously I'm working at that level, trying to stay a step ahead of the reader all the time. We also get introduced to Rhys Derivan. Energy was always coiled in Rhys Derivan until it uncoiled. I mean, it's a very abrupt um, relationship he has with, with Charlie. He's a police officer, but... The communication doesn't seem to be with his son. One of the subplots of the book is the fact that in this beachside town, which I call uh, Menlo Beach, several police officers have bought holiday houses there. There's a sense of mystery developing later in the book. What are these guys really up to? Is there a kind of um, nasty cop culture under the underneath the surface here? So these are old-style cops but as Charlie's the son of an old-style cop and another senior police who lives in the area, Mark Valenti, he's an even harder-bitten character. And uh, Charlie's brother, Liam, really suffered from that because uh, Liam realised quite early on that he was homosexual and these guys were homophobic and Charlie's trying to steer a middle course. Charlie's an appeaser in many ways. It also sets up uh, a contrast between the old and the new. But then... The story jumps 20 years, and this is an interesting conceit which I want to explore because what does that do to the nature of the characters and our expectation as a reader? So where does that place Charlie 20 years on? Well, in 20 years, enough has gone wrong for him to be, uh, be licking his wounds uh, he grew up in this beachside uh, as a shack, really. He grew up there. Then he trained as a police officer, got married, had a daughter, went to live in the city. But then things went wrong for him. He's, the marriage failed. He's under suspension from the police force because um, he pushed his inspector over a desk. So he's lost his house, really. His wife lives there now. And uh, so he's gone back to the beach shack, shack where he grew up. His father no longer lives there. But... It's a mirror image of the opening in many ways, except it's now Charlie in that situation. Yeah, so patterns repeat themselves. We also have another interesting conceit. Charlie's involved with another woman now, Anna, and she was on a jury uh, investigating a rape case. But this has caused another complication. It's almost like another conceit in the story because that has a ripple effect in the background, as well as the fact that Charlie's suspended, but then decides to really investigate his mother's disappearance 20 years earlier. So we've got a cold case going, but the influence of a current case overlapping. Yeah, Charlie's got time on his hands now, so he's devoting it. He's trained as a detective in the meantime, so he's... He's set out to try and solve the mystery, mystery of his mother's disappearance. But, of course, he's, he's uh, under suspension, so he hasn't got the powers that a serving police officer would have. So he's just a citizen in many ways at this level now. So that's one complication for him. But um, he was in the sex crimes unit and they had arrested and taken to trial 
um, a hotshot young footballer for rape. Uh, many people believe that this young guy was being, you know, that that the young rape victim made it up. So that young footballer is a hero and he shouldn't have been being taken to court. So that's where Anna comes in. She's on the jury. She can see what the mood of the jury is. She's frustrated. So she goes out and plays detective herself. And Charlie is sent to arrest her uh, because she's been questioning witnesses. Uh, it's jury misbehaviour and that's a real no-no. And, uh, of course, he falls in love with her. But then he starts to realise yeah, she's got a point. Something was going wrong in that jury room. But, of course, they've rubbed people up the wrong way now because they're uh, into, in, investigating it. Interestingly, it's a very contemporary concern that a victim blaming, but yeah. it's counterpointed with a very old cold case. So you've got the old and the new running parallel. So Charlie's pretty busy, really. But also then, we have an element of physical danger. There is, in fact, an incident where a car goes into their bikes. But we're left wondering, of course, is this part of the cold case investigation? Is Charlie getting too close? Or is it part of the current investigation? And that toys with the reader, confuses the reader, perhaps, or mislead misdirection? Oh, yes, I'm all about misdirection. I'm, I'd happily mister, mislead you. Another factor which we've partly touched on is the psychology and attitude of police departments. You have Rhys Derivan's former colleagues, as you've already identified, Mark Knoll, having retired. But it, it's an old way of doing things that they still have in hand. And former practices, was that informed by any specific knowledge of yours in that case? I have heard contemporary police officers who I think would have made very good old-style cops complaining about the paperwork, the, the frustration of not being able to act swiftly because there are too many hurdles, too, too many boxes to tick, too much uh, paperwork. So I, I was interested in, in that notion of the frustrations that uh, current police officers feel. But it's not just the current police officers. The old police officers would get up to things that, um, yes, could be questionable. Yeah. So another bugbear for Charlie is a, a couple of young, gorgeous young things who are making a podcast keep hassling him, saying, are you aware what your father might have been up to in the past and some of his cohorts? And Charlie tries to dismiss it. Well, in fact, Reese has been a suspect in his wife's disappearance for 20 yeah. years. And, and that's one of Charlie's main motives, is to clear his father's name. Meanwhile, though, his brother Liam is convinced that his father did murder their mother. So there's that family tension arises from that. And there has been misdirection in the disappearance of both Reese and Saul, the young boy, so somebody who knew what they were doing has diverted attention away from what might have actually happened. Yeah, all the way through, Charlie starts to develop a sense of a clever mind at work, trying to identify who made all these moves. Now, another interesting point, and it's sort of slightly away from the cold case and such like, you've brought COVID into your story, Reese and his wife Faye, he's remarried, have gone on a cruise. Were you compelled 
to do that? Was it a necessary addition where you had to alter the manuscript? What brought that reference about? I have weighed this up a lot over the last two or three years, and I think a lot of writers have. Because the pandemic is so huge, because it's international, I don't think we can write as if it never existed. But I think there are some writers out there who are merrily writing away, pretending that there was no, that there's no COVID. I knew I couldn't do that. But I wrote this book, um, started, I suppose, a year and a half ago now, uh, in the early stages, and there was no end point to it. I couldn't put a full stop to it. I didn't, so I didn't want to write as though I was right in the midst of it at the heaviest stage because anything I wrote might seem quite outdated. So I thought, well, I'll give a sense that something is not right globally and that becomes more and more apparent. So the, the main part of the book is set late in uh, 2019, early in 2020, up to, up to about mid-March 2020. That's when I think it was given a name. That's when people started to realise something major was going on uh, because I, I didn't know what would happen later in the, the true story, so that's why I set it there. But at the same time, though, I'm writing a new Hirsch novel and I've set that right in the middle of uh, anti-vaxxers, far-right movements. At one level, I can get away with it because I'm in South Australia where, until very recently, COVID didn't hit very hard. Uh, history's overtaking me. As I, as I write this Hirsch novel, Omicron uh, suddenly popped up and it's changing everything again. It begs the question, though, I've seen some writers set crime novels in the past before mobile phones and CCTV footage because it just adds a further complication which is very hard to get around. Yeah, that brings in the issue of technology. When I write my Wyatt novels, for example, I have to depend on Wyatt being an old-style crim who robs banks and payroll vans. I can't have him breaking into high-tech security systems because I'd have to do several years of research to boil it down into one paragraph. I didn't want to write a novel, a Wyatt novel, where all these clever guys have got laptops and they're plugging into security systems. Last but not least, the ending of the book seems like you're playing on the conventions of a crime story. And I'm just wondering how much you can tell us about the final chase where, of course... The criminal is caught, I think we can say that, but it's how he is caught and you playing on a, a particular convention here. Uh, well, I'll tease the reader by saying that dog shit comes into it, but I, I often tell my daughter a film's not a good film unless it's got a car chase. Now, this isn't a car chase quite, but it is a vehicular chase. But you've got the sort of model of Steve McQueen, bullet the car flying over the crest of a hill and thumping, going through intersections and missing cars. This is classic. And yet this is unclassic, deliberately so, I, entertainingly yeah. so. I did have a lot of fun with this. And the, the, the dog shit just suddenly appeared as I was writing the last few pages. So it came out of nowhere, but it seemed right at the time. Well, folks, if you want to find out what that car chase or that vehicle chase was all about at the end of Gary's novel, Where the Criminal is Caught, if you want to find out the connection between Rose Derivan 
and the young lad saw and how it is that they both disappeared at the same time, you will need to read Gary Gish's The Way It Is Now, and it's from Text Publishing. So, Gary, thank you very much for talking with me again. Oh, thanks, David. Thanks for having me on. Tune in next week for more authors. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.